Welcome to the Set of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Shorstein, Lesnetsky, and Guy. And each week, I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's Florida DCA and Florida Supreme Court decisions, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So whether you're on your way to court, taking a jog, or otherwise have some time to spare, join me each week to get your dose of the latest criminal case opinions. All right, welcome back to the Set of the Crime podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the Florida case law update for the week of August 29th, 2022 through September 2nd, 2022. And it was a pretty light calendar uh, this week. There were only five cases. Uh, Two of those cases came out of the Florida Supreme Court, but both were uh, death penalty cases. There were uh, no cases coming out of the first DCA, the fourth DCA, or the fifth DCA. Uh, one case came out of the second DCA and two third two came out of the third DCA. So let's jump right into the uh, two Florida Supreme Court cases today. Uh, the first one is Gordon v. State, and this was a Florida Supreme Court case that came out on September 1st, and Gordon's a death penalty case. Mr. Gordon and two other armed men robbed a Cash America pawn shop. And during their flight from the robbery, Mr. Gordon entered a house and killed two women. Officers surrounded the house, and Mr. Gordon crashed the victim's car through the garage door and fled. Mr. Gordon was apprehended shortly thereafter. He was charged with first-degree murder and various other counts, and he was convicted at trial and sentenced to death. On appeal, Mr. Gordon raised several issues. First, he argued that the state impermissibly struck a juror on account of race. In State v. Johnson, the Florida Supreme Court laid out the procedure for preserving a challenge to a peremptory strike based on race. The party opposing a peremptory strike must make a specific objection to the proponent's proffered race-neutral reason for the strike, if contested, to preserve the claim that the trial court erred in in concluding that the proffered reason was genuine. The trial court will only be reversed if the decision was clearly erroneous. The defendant must create a record containing the legal grounds for his or her objection. So here the Florida Supreme Court held that the trial counsel did not properly preserve the argument. On appeal, Mr. Gordon argued that the state's race-neutral reasons were pretextual. However, at the trial court level, although the defense attorney objected to the peremptory challenge on race grounds, The attorney did not clearly argue that the state's reasons for the strike were pretextual and why. The court noted that proper preservation requires three steps. First, a timely contemporaneous objection. Second, a legal ground for the objection. And third, in order for an argument to be cognizable on appeal, it must be the specific contention asserted as a legal ground for the objection, exception, or or, uh, motion. Here, the court found that the trial attorney did not provide a legal ground for the objection because the attorney did not present a reason to doubt the genuineness of the peremptory strike. The court gave some examples of how the trial court uh, could have or how the trial counsel could have preserved the issue, including arguing that another similarly situated juror who was a different race was kept by the state. Therefore, the issue was not preserved and it was deemed waived. 
Gordon next challenged the sufficiency of the evidence. To sustain a conviction, there must be competent, substantial evidence to support the jury's verdict. The appellate court will view the evidence in light most favorable to the state. Mr. Gordon argued that the state provided insufficient evidence to prove premeditation for the first-degree murder charge. Premeditation requires proof that the defendant was aware of the consequences of the actions that caused the death and that the defendant had the opportunity for reflection prior to committing the fatal acts. Here, the court found that Mr. Gordon's flight, part of the, uh, his part in the high-speed police chase, his knowledge that officers were following and looking for him, his crashing the vehicle through the garage door with no warning um, at all, all provided competent, substantial evidence for the jury to conclude that Mr. Gordon's acts were premeditated. Mr. Gordon also argued that his sentence of death violated the Eighth Amendment based on comparative proportionality. But the Florida Supreme Court quickly quashed that argument as foreclosed by its precedent decision in Lawrence v. State. The court noted that the Eighth Amendment protects two classes of people from execution, the intellectually disabled and minors. However, it does not require a categorical bar against the execution of persons who suffer from any form of mental illness or brain damage. The court held in Johnson v. State that the existence of a traumatic brain injury does not reduce an individual's culpability to the extent that they become immune from capital punishment. And the court has repeatedly rejected the argument that defendants with mental illness must be treated similarly to those with mental retardation. Case affirmed. Our second case today is State v. Mullins. It's another Florida Supreme Court case that was released August 31st of 2022. And Mullins is another death case, but here the Florida Supreme Court reviewed the lower court's order granting a new penalty phase. Mr. Mullins was convicted of killing a convenience store owner and customer and attempting to kill a third customer or a second customer during the robbery. He was convicted and sentenced to death. However, the trial court granted a motion for post-conviction relief, finding the trial attorney was ineffective in relation to the penalty phase. The state appealed, and the Florida Supreme Court reviewed the post-conviction court's decision. Under the seminal Florida uh, Supreme Court decision in Strickland, there is a two-pronged test to determine whether counsel was ineffective under the Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel. First, a defendant must prove that counsel was deficient. And second, a defendant must prove prejudice. An attorney has a strict duty to conduct a reasonable investigation of a defendant's background for possible mitigating evidence. However, counsel is entitled to rely on a qualified expert's opinion, and such reliance is not rendered unreasonable just because a new expert in post-conviction proceedings disagrees with trial counsel's expert. There is a strong presumption that trial counsel's performance falls within the wide range of reasonable professional assistance. For prejudice in death cases, a defendant must demonstrate that there is a reasonable probability that absent the errors, the sentencer would have concluded that the balance of aggravating and mitigating circumstances did not warrant death. Here, the trial court determined that the trial counsel was deficient based mostly on the testimony of two new experts at the post-conviction hearing, 
who opined that Mr. Mullins needed neuropsychological testing, um, that he had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and some other testimony by those two experts. The two new experts testified uh, at the hearing that they believed Mr. Mullins had been the victim of sexual abuse, and the trial court found that trial counsel was deficient for not properly presenting relevant evidence at the penalty phase regarding that issue. The Florida Supreme Court concluded that the post-conviction court erred in this finding because the record did not provide any identifiable objective evidence that would have been available to the trial counsel. Trial counsel was entitled to rely on the expert's testimony that he had at the time, and counsel is not deficient simply because post-conviction counsel secures a more favorable expert. And post-conviction experts' testimony was no less speculative in this case than the original experts' testimony. The original expert concluded that Mr. Mullins did not suffer from PTSD. He had an IQ of 83, which most likely wouldn't support an intellectual disability claim, and didn't require a neuropsychologist. Counsel was entitled to rely on that expert opinion. The post-conviction court also found trial counsel deficient for providing an incoherent narrative at the penalty phase, but after reviewing the record, the Florida Supreme Court disagreed. The court went on to state that even if Mr. Mullins did meet the first deficiency prong of Strickland, which it didn't, uh, he failed to establish prejudice. The court noted that the trial court uh, found three aggravators, including previous conviction for violent felonies, the murders occurred during an armed robbery, and they were committed to avoid arrest. The court's decision that death was warranted based on those aggravators as balanced by the mitigating factors would not have been undermined by Mr. Mullins' proposed new uh, expert testimony. The new experts didn't explain how their diagnosis was consistent with the video surveillance evidence of the murders or how the evidence of Mr. Mullins' improvement while on medication was consistent with their finding of permanent brain damage. The court also noted that the new expert testimony lacked corroboration like brain scans or other medical documentation. The court also refused to accept the trial court's statement that he would have imposed a life sentence had he heard the new mitigating evidence provided by the new experts. The court conducts its own analysis on prejudice and does not consider the trial court statement as dispositive. Mr. Mullins also cross-appealed, arguing that his counsel was ineffective for failing to discover jail records showing that he was on antipsychotic medication. The court found that the record showed that the trial counsel was aware of the medication and the effect that it had on Mr. Mullins, and the trial court specifically made a finding that the medication did not undermine his ability to enter a voluntary uh, guilty plea. Mr. Mullins also argued that trial counsel was ineffective for not foreseeing the Hearst decision and that change in the Florida law. But the Florida Supreme Court has repeatedly held that counsel is not ineffective for failing to anticipate changes in the law. Case reversed. Our third case today is Taylor v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released on August 31st, 2022. 
Taylor's a case out of Hillsborough County where Mr. Taylor appeals an order denying his application for a sentence review hearing pursuant to Rule 3.802. Mr. Taylor was sentenced to a life imprisonment on a first-degree murder count and to 30 years with a 20-year minimum mandatory sentence on an attempted robbery count. Mr. Taylor was 17 when he committed the crimes. After a change in the law related to juvenile sentencing, he was previously uh, resentenced uh, under 775.082 subsection 1B1 to life with judicial review after 25 years on the murder conviction. However, he still had 30 years on count two, the attempted robbery count, with no review after 25 years. So he now seeks judicial review for his attempted robbery count. Under 921.1402, subsection 1, Mr. Taylor would only be entitled to review on this count if his sentence was unconstitutional. Under State v. Morales, a 30-year sentence is not a de facto life sentence and therefore is not unconstitutional under the U.S. Supreme Court decisions in Miller v. Alabama or Graham v. Florida. Because Mr. Taylor's 30-year sentence does not violate the Eighth Amendment, he is not entitled to judicial review of his sentence pursuant to 775.082 and 921.1402. Case affirmed. Our fourth case today is Darling v. State. This is a Florida third DCA case that was released on August 31st, 2022. Darling is a 3.800 motion to correct illegal sentence, and it is out of Miami-Dade County. Mr. Darling was convicted of aggravated assault and manslaughter. The jury found that Mr. Darling discharged a firearm during the commission of the offense, and therefore the trial court sentenced him to a minimum mandatory term of 20 years on the aggravated assault and 30 years on the manslaughter count. On appeal, Mr. Darling argued that a firearm is an essential element of both crimes and his convictions were improperly reclassified and therefore his sentences exceeded the statutory maximum. An illegal sentence has been narrowly defined by the Florida Supreme Court as, quote, one that imposes a punishment or penalty that no judge under the entire body of sentencing statutes and laws could impose under any set of factual circumstances, end quote. Aggravated assault is not subject to reclassification under 775.087 subsection 1 because the firearm is an essential element of aggravated assault. However, here the trial court didn't reclassify the offense under 775.087 subsection 1, but rather sentenced him to a minimum mandatory under 775.087. At the time of Mr. Darling's sentence, aggravated assault was included in the enumerated 775.087 offenses that carried minimum mandatory sentences, and therefore the trial court at that time was mandated to sentence him to at least 20 years on that count. As to the manslaughter count, the court did reclassify that count up to a first-degree felony, uh, but use of a firearm is not an element of manslaughter. Therefore, manslaughter is properly reclassified under 775.087, subsection 1. Case affirmed.
Our fifth case today is Ramirez v. State. This is a Florida 3rd DCA case that was released on August 31st, 2022. Ramirez is another 3.800 case out of Miami-Dade County. And here the 3rd DCA held that Mr. Ramirez used the improper tool for his appeal. A motion to correct illegal sentence under 3.800 subsection 1 is not cognizable, whereas here the defendant seeks to challenge the validity of the conviction and only by extension the legality of the resulting sentence. The 3rd DCA held that Mr. Ramirez should have raised his claim on direct appeal or through a 3850 motion for post-conviction relief. Case affirmed. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Shorstein, Lesnetsky, and Guyon. And this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the episode description for timestamps for each case in each jurisdiction. Thanks for joining us at the site of the crime.